So for today's episode, I'm here with Jessica Fritz Aguirre again. And today is sort of a special episode because Jessica has written something um, to sort of sum up this entire investigation. Um, I think there's a lot of moving parts in this case and a lot of layers to this story that we've uncovered a little bit with every single episode. And I think for the casual listener, a lot of the little details have sort of been getting lost. Um, We get accused of having a little too much conjecture sometimes. And I think it's very important, though, for people to remember that anything that you really want to call conjecture isn't just conjecture based out of nowhere. This is all um, calculated thoughts, theories that we've put together based on physical information that we have, whether that be firsthand accounts or documents that Jessica has been able to uncover. And I think that that's what we kind of want to explain today is that there's a difference between having just conjecture and things being coincidental. But when you have physical evidence and physical documents, these things formerly known as coincidence or theories, they come together to be more than that. They become a circumstance. So I think that that is what Jessica has put together today to sort of explain a lot of the details and to sort of walk us through the timeline of everything she's uncovered in the case and everything that we've uncovered in the case along the way. So in a minute, I'm about to turn it over to Jessica Fritz-Aguire so she can speak for this episode. This is season two, episode 22 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. And here's Jessica Fritz-Aguire. Thanks, Sarah. So when we first started looking at this case back in late 2018, there was so little information available, but one thing seemed to stick out. Mark was guilty. We didn't receive that award-winning detail-packed digital-only article from 2001 from Lauren to Chorus till mid-February, so that left us with a few sparse articles reporting only the same facts over and over. We were on our own. Mark waited three days to report Doreen missing. He admitted to slamming her into a window so hard that it broke the day she went missing. And the paper seemed to report the disappearance of the comforter and the fact of the underwear photos with little fanfare. It was extremely frustrating to have so little information, but made the case look simple. Mark had done something with Doreen and hidden her away. It was maddening nothing had been done. It soon became clear that Mark would be of no help. The very first time Mark spoke to Joe, he started the conversation with this, quote, Every day, I'm just nauseated with more and more children, and they're getting younger, disappearing. You know how much our government has its hands in this stuff. After going back and forth for a few minutes, Mark said this, I hope you get to the main source. You know, all the pedophile rings and all that crap. It starts with our government, and it's sad. You know, it's sad but true. And because they got the money, they got the juice. I'm just livid about the whole thing, you know. End quote. 
Now, this conversation took place on December 27th, 2018, just as we started really ramping up our investigation before we even had the chance to meet with Donna and her sisters. And Sarah and Joe and I laughed. It sounds like the words of someone trying to concoct a crazy story to deflect any attention from what he'd done. But as we dug more and more, little things started to pop out at us. And given how focused we were on Mark, we couldn't make them fit. They were outsized and bizarre, even for the case we were handling. Today, let's take a good hard look at those pieces and try to make some sense of them when we ask the question, what happened to Doreen Jane Vincent? Let's start with one of the most frustrating, maddening aspects of this case, the putative 2003 confession. You remember the details. Mark thought he was terminally ill and he wanted to exchange, quote, information relevant to Doreen's disappearance, end quote, in exchange for full immunity. The brazenness of that request set my face on fire. I simply could not believe that one could be that cold-blooded to expect to walk into a police station and confess the details of a murder, then walk off scot-free. It defied explanation. After all, confessing to a murder usually means jail, which Mark is legendarily afraid of. But still, it was one of his periods of faith right as he entered Teen Challenge, and the police told me he thought he was going to die. But listen closer, because the police didn't tell us Mark was heading in there to confess. Confess is our word. It's what we put on it after we got that information. In fact, Lieutenant DeMeo made very clear that the state's attorney called off the meeting when they got cold feet, fearing that what Mark had to say might, and I quote, blossom into a full-blown confession, end quote, because Mark hadn't wanted to confess. Listen again. He wanted to, quote, impart information relevant to Doreen's disappearance, end quote. Hold on. Was he trying to broker a deal by throwing someone else under the bus? Was he trying to give up a bigger player in the story? The more we thought about this, the more we realized we had to broaden our horizon as we continued to look into what happened to Doreen. What did Mark and the police know about? Another weird puzzle piece popped up when I got my hands on pages 30 and 31 of Mark's July 17, 1989 interview with Tom Hanley and Bob Fliss of the Wallingford Police Department. Listeners will recall that Hanley and Fliss were the two main detectives on the case when it heated up again in the spring of 1989. That's almost a year after Doreen went missing. We don't have the rest of that statement because the only pages that I have been able to hunt down are only publicly available because they were relevant to finding Mark guilty in his 1991 gun trial. You've heard them before, but here are the first few lines. Hanley says, no, we're keeping those pictures. Mark says, I don't have any pictures. I gave them all out. Hanley says, this is all we have of her. We have made no assumptions at all in this case. All we've done is simply confront you with some discrepancies and some misconceptions that we have. Finding myself at the Danbury Superior Court with something I was pretty sure Donna had never seen, I called her and invited myself to bingo. Here's a clip of Stephanie, Doreen's sister, at bingo that night. 
What? He gave all his pictures of his missing daughter away. Who does that? One. And then two. Okay. You're saying that... You're, he gave them all away. When? He said, okay. It says, no, we're keeping the pictures, the detective. Okay. And it says, I don't have any pictures, Mark Vincent. I gave them all out. Oh, real quick, and this confused me too. This is the first page. That's 30, and then this is 31. So if it seems like oh, it's out okay. of order. Oh, okay. All right, all right. And then he puts, okay, um, this is all we have of her. We've made no assumptions at all on this case. All we've done is simply confront you with some discrepancies and some misconceptions that we have. Why do I hear assumptions from people that you've talked to? That's what you're worried about? Stephanie's right. What a jerk. They say no one grieves the same way, and we shouldn't judge other people for the way that they do. But it nagged me that Mark had given up all of his photos. That detail stuck in my mind. So I dug back through all the documents we had compiled to see what other mentions of any photos I could find. Let's look at the July 1989 warrant request. Again, this is about a year after Doreen went missing. Most true crime fans know that if the police want to get a warrant to enter somebody's home, the Fourth Amendment requires that they submit an affidavit specifying what they're looking for and why they have probable cause to believe they will find it. So our warrant goes through a litany of reasons, a lot of them the sketchy behavior of Mark himself, as to why the police believe they were more than likely than not, that's probable cause 50-50, to find the following items at Mark's mother's house in Bethel. Quote, medical records, personal papers, clothing, and artifacts of Doreen Vincent. And then it says semicolon, photographs of Doreen Vincent, end quote. Now, I get medical records, personal papers, clothing, artifacts, all that might have to do with finding a missing girl. But I didn't understand why they wanted photos. The Wallingford police told me that they needed to see what Doreen looked like so they could put out updated flyers with her picture. But that doesn't make sense. Remember, this is July 1989. They knew what Doreen looked like in June of 1988 when she went missing. Donna had given them a bunch of photos, which you've all seen regurgitated all over old reports of Doreen. Additional photos taken before Doreen's disappearance wouldn't provide any new information. So why did the Wallingford Police Department look for photos specifically? Paragraph 16 of the warrant affidavit, which reads as follows, might provide some clue. Quote, that Mark Vincent had told the undersigned, as well as private investigator Richard Novia and Donna Jones, that he had taken photographs of Doreen while she posed in her underwear. He had told Novia that there was, in fact, film in the camera and that these photos were taken in the weeks preceding her disappearance, end quote. So there it is again, the film in the camera. You've heard that before, whisperings of Mark, admitting that he photographed his daughter in her underwear, but insisting that it was okay because there was no film in the camera. Mark does this a lot. He admits to something heinous or disturbing and trying to tone down what happened by providing additional questionable details that don't really erase the original statement. They only call them further into question. To Mark, it shouldn't ring strange that on the day Doreen allegedly disappeared, he broke a window by pushing her into it or paddled her so hard she screamed. In Mark's mind, we are supposed to treat these as unrelated events. In Mark's mind, he didn't tell his mother and his friend and benefactor, Georgia Lewis, 
that Doreen was missing when he visited them on June 19, 1988. Now, according to Mark's timeline, that's four days after Doreen went missing. It's also Father's Day. He says he didn't report Doreen missing to Georgia and his mother because they didn't have a relationship with his daughter. Let's go now to paragraph 17 of the July 31st, 1989 warrant, which reads as follows, quote, that Roseanne Poloni, I think you guys will remember, this is Mark's girlfriend he was living with at the time in June of 1989. The police were only able to track Mark down because he had a domestic violence incident with Roseanne where he um, called her clothing whorish and burned it in the fire pit. So I'll start again. Quote, that Roseanne Poloni had stated that Mark Vincent, while he lived with her, was always taking photographs. However, she had never seen any of these, and she had searched his personal effects while he was not around, and never found them. End quote. That part always bugged me. Why would Roseanne have been looking for photos of Doreen in her underwear? That's when I realized someone told her to. There was a month or so between the domestic violence incident between Mark and Roseanne and the July 31st, 1989 warrant. To me, it sounds like the Wallingford police sent Roseanne hunting in her apartment for photos, specifically for underwear photos, and she came up empty handed. So logically, I think we can come to the following three conclusions. The Wallingford police knew about the underwear photos before they spoke to Mark on July 17th. 1989. They directed Roseanne to look for them, but came up empty-handed. They then filed a warrant aimed at discovering photos in Mark's mother's home. And here, let me add a fact. Seized as a result of that warrant at Mark's mother's house in Bethel, with Doreen's birth certificate and the illegal gun, were two photos of Doreen. What kind of photos isn't specified, but The Wallingford police to this day has refused to admit that one, there are underwear photos or two, that they are in possession of the underwear photos. So again, discordant. But let's go back and listen to Mark and Hanley discuss the two photos seized from Sunset Hill Road in Bethel, Mark's mother's house. Hanley says, no, we're keeping those pictures. Mark says, I don't have any pictures. I gave them all out. Now, it remains a matter of conjecture. But it seems to me that Mark was giving out underwear photos of Doreen. The question becomes, to whom? So now let's talk about another piece that's always bugged me, the gun. Remember that gun Mark made Sharon apply to buy at Meriden Silver City Gun Shop in late June 1988? That was only a couple weeks after Doreen went missing. We've always puzzled over and over just why Mark would need a new gun right after Doreen went missing. Well, after the search warrant was executed on July 31st, 1989, the Wallingford police produced a case incident report reading as follows, quote, Sharon was not really sure why Mark wanted to buy this gun, but gave several possible reasons. One, that Mark was upset about Doreen's disappearance, and this may have had something to do with it. Two, that Mark was not comfortable with living out in the woods in Wallingford. Three, when they lived in Wallingford, woodchucks kept trying to get into their house. 
She did not really know the exact reasons why Mark wanted to buy a gun, but she did not question him for these reasons, although she did not want the gun. So let's take that apart, shall we? So as cute as they might be, let's throw woodchucks out the window. If you believe Mark was worried about woodchucks two weeks after his daughter went missing, I have a bridge to sell you. Uh, More importantly, I don't buy that Mark was not comfortable living out in the woods. He'd grown up in rural Bethel at the mouth of Huntington State Park, which he made his childhood playground. And it was his decision to move the entire family of all places out among the cows and silos on Whirlwind Hill Road. Guys, there was nothing out there in 1988. Not Gouveia, nothing. It was just farmland. So if he was upset his daughter ran away, why does he need a gun? As I ponder this point, I'm reminded of another thing that never made sense, found in paragraph 2D of the warrant, quote, that sometime prior to 7 a.m. on June 16, 1988, only a few hours after he arrived home, and just breaking in for a minute, that's after he supposedly went out and searched for Doreen when she went missing. Um, Mark told Sharon to take the kids, meaning Sarah and Paul, and get out of the house in case something happened. Ask yourself, what was going to happen? The worst has already happened. If you assume Doreen has run away or been kidnapped, why would Mark be scared for his wife and young children to be home alone. Maybe he wanted them out of the house because he had to cover up something he'd done, but maybe not. Was Mark scared something might happen to his family? So what does Mark have to say about his reasons for buying the gun? Careful listeners will remember that he mentioned in his statement to police that someone blew off a bomb in his front yard one night that he wanted to protect his children, and that, quote, a gun is going to do what a gun does, end quote. And while we only have the two pages of that statement, here is what the July 31st case incident report tells us the police thought about that story. Quote, Mark did not mention any of the reasons for buying a gun that Sharon had told us, woodchucks, nor did he provide any specific details about the bomb he said someone had blown off in his front yard. End quote. That's it. That's where the bomb story ends for the Wallingford police. They had the man sitting right in front of them, and they didn't follow up to find out what in the hell he was talking about. The only other adult who could tell us anything was Sharon, who, despite being gone, lives on in my pile of documents with a few final words. In the July 31st, 1989 case incident report, we hear what she said to Edward Dewey, the Silver City owner. She stated that she was trying to get rid of the gun because she did not feel safe with her husband, Mark, having it. Some of that account is borne out in the affidavit for the warrant, which, and this is weird, guys, just just put this in the back of your minds because we'll come back to it. The warrant has two versions that I have been able to find. There's the original, which only includes information about the disappeared Doreen. But there's a second alternative warrant, which adds information in a different font, clearly on an altered photocopied page, about Sharon's seemingly out of nowhere confession about the gun. You'll see that duality in her statement where she talks about Doreen being missing and in the last paragraph says, oh, I'd also like to add that Mark bought a gun. So dueling warrants, you ask? Well, stay tuned as we try to puzzle out what that's all about. So 
finally, we started this episode with Mark's words. Remember about the pedophile rings and the government having the juice. So it's fitting to end with the man himself again. Let's start with the article where he says something along the lines of, if you're looking to find her, look somewhere else because she's not here. That always raises the hackles on the back of my neck. It could be an innocent man. It could be a guilty man deflecting blame. But I think it's something else. Mark likes to talk about how the investigation has affected him. Here he is during his July 17, 1989 statement to the Wallingford Police Department. You've heard it before. Now listen again. Quote, I care about one thing. I care about my daughter. And yeah, I'm afraid to see her. I'm afraid to see her because of the stories month after month after month after month, period. I'm afraid to see her. That's right. I'm hard. I'm hardened right now. I'm very, very hardened. I miss my daughter. I care about her, yes. And I'm afraid to see her at the same time, end quote. So Hanley pushes him. Hanley says, you're not that hard. You can tell me you are, but you, end quote. And Mark says, I have to be. I have to be. Hanley responds, you've got a conscience. And Mark's reply is this, quote, yeah, I have a conscience, okay, but I have to overlook all the hell that I've heard and been through and all of that over her. I have to, because I still have to work. You understand that? Now, consider your initial reaction to that, which might have been like mine and Sarah's and Joe's or like Donna's and Stephanie's. Here's Stephanie and Donna at Bingo the day I found that statement. You and Why would he be afraid to see his daughter at the same so time? That's so messed up, Stephanie. I don't understand that. So, see what read it out loud. Okay. Mark Vincent, I care about one thing. I care about my daughter, and yeah, I'm afraid to see her. I'm afraid to see her because of the stories month after month after month after month, period. I'm afraid to see her. That's right. I'm hard. I'm hardened right now. I'm very, very hardened. I miss my daughter. I care about her, but yes, and care about her, yes, and I'm afraid to see her at the same time. Are you kidding? There's no way anyone who's missing a daughter, like my mom, like, would you be afraid to see no. Noreen no. even now? I mean, no. I month off from work after this happened in the beginning i went back to work because i thought that everything you know i i can handle her or whatever well i couldn't okay and i left work and i took a month off from work to do probably stupid senseless things but like i told you go to new york hang up flyers go down stupid senseless things like look for her yourself right but i mean things that i really didn't believe in because i believe from the beginning that he had something to do with her disappearance but i i still went out and i did those things i did i i because just she's your daughter just in case exactly exactly bizarre right he's scared to see her, we've discussed how narcissistic it is to consider yourself and your own needs as an individual and as an adult before the needs of your allegedly missing child. We've discussed the telltale heart and the idea that Mark might have been plagued by Doreen and what he might have done to her in his nightmares. That's conjecture. But listen to what he really says carefully. He hears stories 
month after month after month after month. What stories? What does that mean? He has to overlook all the hell, not that he's been through, but that he's heard about Doreen. So ask yourself the question. There are so many pieces to this puzzle that we have found that don't make sense when you picture Mark as the ultimate bad guy, that don't fit when you decide he's the only one to blame. So let's keep digging and keep listening. Listen for discordant facts, things that pop up and raise the hair on the back of your neck. I can list a few of our own here. It's weird that Laura West secured a permit to tear down the barn that formed Mark's alibi in 1988 in October, four months after Doreen went missing. It's weird that when I asked her why she did it, the only explanation she offered was it was just a building that people didn't want on the property anymore. I don't like the fact that Jimmy insists Mark paid $600 in cash a month for what Jimmy calls a whole house and that Mark never did any work for rent when Laura says the exact opposite. I don't like that Jimmy remembers Doreen as dressing all in black. No one else remembers her that way, and I've seen no photographic proof. But here's what's always really rubbed me the wrong way, maybe more than any fact in this horrible, horrible story. How does Jimmy not remember Mark's name? Especially after, and this is a new fact, guys, Laura tells me they met in the mid-80s, a few years before the family moved to Wallingford and Doreen went missing because Mark renovated Laura and Jimmy's New Haven home on Fountain Street. So I'll stop here for today because I'm sure your mind like ours is reeling. I am not pointing fingers, but I think it's important to get the facts as they are on the table. We can all theorize and we should It's not the simple story we thought it once was, and it continues to unravel. So let's keep listening, let's keep talking, and let's find justice for Dory. And that's been Jessica Fritz-Aguire. I want to thank Jessica for coming in today and for sharing that with us today. Um, I'm sure that listeners have a lot of questions too. I know that there's always we always encourage people to bring us their questions on Facebook. If you're in the followers of Faded Out Group on Facebook, um, we encourage discussion and we encourage theories um, and we encourage even people who disagree with us. We just we want to keep the conversation going in a respectful fashion, of course. Um, but I think, as I mentioned in my intro. There's a lot of facts in this case, and I stress that these are facts, just items that kind of stick out like a sore thumb. And Jessica touched on pretty much all of them that are the most pressing. Um, You have to really ask yourself why certain things are happening. Um, Why did Mark choose to move the family out to Wallingford And what could have transpired in that very short amount of time that caused Doreen to go missing in less than 10 days? Um, Whatever happened and whatever that reason was, everything went to hell in a handbasket real quick. 
Um, and I think that that's something that you have to pay attention to and just try to remember who were the people, and I've said this before in, in previous episodes, who were the people in Mark's life at the time? So again, thank you, Jess, for coming in today. You know I, think, I love it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we can wrap this up for today. And of course, Thanks, we encourage, Sarah. yeah, of course. And we, of course, encourage questions, comments, anything that seems unclear. We appreciate all the digging that listeners do because there's plenty of listeners who like to do deep dives of their own, which which is awesome. We're obviously going to continue this investigation, continue following this story. We are going to talk more about these photos that have come up in every single episode so far. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Please find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. Please join the followers of Faded Out group on there. You can also send us an email if you choose at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Dimio, along with Jessica Fritz-Aguire. This has been episode 22. We'll see you next time.